Welcome to Season 2 of The Morning Glory Project. I'm your host, Betsy Graziani-Fassbender. And on this podcast, I bring to you guests of a lot of different kinds, survivors and thrivers, innovators and trailblazers, folks that have fallen down and gotten back up, folks that have been knocked down and gotten back up. Basically, I ask every single guest the same question. How did you get through what you got through? And the reason I ask that is because I think that when we share those stories, we gain empathy for those different than ourselves. We gain understanding from those whose circumstances may resemble our own. But we all get to walk away with a little notion of how we might get through whatever we're going through. I hope you enjoyed these stories and feel free to go to themorningglory.project.com to find any past episodes or to listen to one again and feel free to share us out with your friends and give us a reviewer like we sure do appreciate it. Thanks for listening. It is my pleasure today to welcome Lisa Daly to the Morning Glory Project. When a chance meeting at a writer's conference a few years ago had me sitting across the table from Lisa at lunch. I soon learned that hers was a story that others should hear. And this was before the Morning Glory Project even existed, but I've held her in my mind since then. Lisa has long been an avid traveler and writer, and in her time abroad, she unearthed new ways of looking at her life through her discoveries in remote corners of the world, and she continues to enrich her life through travel. Square Up is her debut book, a memoir detailing a seven-month trip around the world with her husband and two teenage sons on the heels of an extraordinary series of losses. Lisa is currently working on a recipe anthology, as well as her first book of fiction. A native Montanan, Lisa now makes her home by the ocean in Bellingham, Washington, but returns to her roots every summer for a healthy dose of mountains and big sky. Lisa is the owner of Silent Sidekick and Sidekick Press, both dedicated to guiding authors through their publishing journey and building their online platform. Lisa Daly, welcome to the Morning Glory Project. I'm so glad you're here. Thanks, Betsy. Glad to be here. So Lisa, I'm going to invite you to start off by reading just the beginning of the prologue of your book, Square Up. The notion that bad things happens in threes is bullshit. I was 35 the summer my father died. I hadn't seen him in years. Cal, my maternal grandfather, died three short months later. As leaves changed from green to orange, it seemed even the trees mourned. As a new year began, holding promise for new beginnings, my 23-year-old brother, Zach, overdosed just as he was gaining a foothold in sobriety. Still reeling from his death, our mother was diagnosed with an aggressive form of melanoma before summer arrived once more. Year after year, the deaths continued as if trying to keep up with the changing of the seasons. Fall, great-grandmother, old age. Winter, father-in-law, cancer. Spring, 16-year-old cousin, suicide. The cycle of death concluded with my mother, days after I turned 40. Final tally, death, seven, years, five. Ironically, right at the lowest point in my life, when I was begging for the universe to give me a break, it did just that. The details for a round-the-world trip we've been dreaming about for years fell into place. We had done enough research to prepare our family for long-term travel, we had the means to make the trip a reality. All that was left was my willingness to let go of my fear and embrace the unknown. Easier said than done. Hmm. The subtitle to your book 
is 50,000 miles in search of a way home. So as I read your book and it's beautifully written, you know, it, it's it's an interesting combination because in, on one hand, it's sort of a, a travel story, you know, the likes of which we might read, you know, in adventures around the world with your kids kind of thing. But it's got the backdrop of these losses. And, and it, it did put me in mind of Cheryl Strayed's Wild, because yes, hers is a story about the hike of the of the PCT, right? But it's not really just about that. That's just the setting in a way. Is is that how you feel about it? And, and what do you mean by 50,000 miles in search of a way home? I think that is the way I feel about it. You know, I mean, I had always wanted to write a book and this isn't the first story that I had in mind, but when I got back for the trip, I really needed a way to digest it. And when we set out on the trip, I was reeling from years plagued with death and I was scared about every aspect that this this trip might entail. So when I got back home and wrote it all down, it did really seem like travel was the sort of means by which I got to explore that grief and um, process it and move forward. Well, what struck me often in your story is, and, and perhaps it struck me because I have the same affliction. I'm not sure. <laughs> Maybe this is part confession for my asking the question. But it seemed that it was also your relationship with control. You know, your and you know, the grief, the loss of others, particularly suicide and cancer and all of the and overdose, all those things were so far out of your control that it seemed like you wanted to control as many things as you possibly could and, and nothing like international travel to foul that up. Right. <laughs> <laughs> For sure. I think you're spot on. I mean, I definitely always felt like someone who was organized and knew where things were, you know, my husband couldn't misplace his keys. He'd be looking for them and I'd say they're on your desk. You know, my kids couldn't find their, their where to go um, out to their soccer game. I'm like, your, your knee pads are over here and your shoes are over here. I, I, I did things like that by, by the book, you know, at work, I was always on top of things. I was always organized. My calendar was set. All my emails were answered. And suddenly with all this death, it threw my life very much feeling out of control, feeling like I, I didn't know where to turn. I was sort of lost in that. And then it also brought up a great deal of fear. Like if all these people that were close to me can suddenly just die, I mean, what about my husband and my two teenage kids? What, you know, how in the blink of an eye, they could be gone. And so, yeah, international travel and with all the unknowns that entailed was, was very frightening for me. And, and still you felt compelled to do it. I'm, I'm wondering what drove you toward it as opposed to away from it. Like, why not just stay home for another year? Why not just kind of chill and mellow out and kind of heal? And there was something itchy in you, it seemed. Yeah, there there was. I mean, we we could have waited, but it was the right time for my kids. Um, they were both teenagers. And when we left, they were in eighth and ninth grade. And we knew that if we waited another year and our youngest got into high school, that there was no way that he would want to go. Mm. And the other thing is my husband had just recently retired from the public health service after 20 years of service. And so he had a gap where he was able to take that time before 
almost like a sabbatical before then becoming um, employed by the same place that he'd been working at as a civilian. And so you weren't you weren't traveling sort of in the lap of luxury way of doing things, it seemed. I mean, it, it, you weren't, I don't mean to imply that you were, you know, riding in the hulls of boats or anything, but, but that you were going a la military travel and things like that, weren't you? Right. Yeah. Because he was in the public health service, he qualifies for military benefits, one of which is to travel via what's called space availability or space A. Planes fly all over the world every day, moving troops and equipment and supplies. And whenever there's extra seats available on those flights, military personnel can get a hop, take a hop, basically is what it's called, and kind of tag along to go from one place to the next. And so we spent a great deal of time traveling by that means. Um, So we made it from Travis, California, all the way to Singapore. Well, And so what what strikes me as interesting about that is that's even less out of control than, say, standard airline travel, where you book a seat and you know what chair you're going to sit in and what time everything's going to arrive. Everything was sort of wait and see and catch as catch can. And, and that way you have to take what's available. And it seems like that stretched you further into the, your out of control controlness. It absolutely did, because the flights for Space A are only posted 72 hours in advance. And sometimes they pop up the next day and sometimes they fall off the next day and you can be flying on one of those flights and it can change destinations mid-flight. So doing things like normal people would like booking hotel rooms and setting up transportation and and researching a place before we went were we're out of the out of the window at some point because I know when we traveled from um, Okinawa to Singapore we had not expected to get to Singapore we had expected that we, our next hop would be to Korea because there was a lot of flights from Okinawa to South Korea. We had no idea, but we just left when the opportunity presented itself. So here you are, and and this is to me the crux of the story. So here you are, a person who is organized and on top of things and in control. Then your life gets kind of spun out of control with this series of tragic losses in a row. Then you're thrust into, by choice, certainly, but, but also just the timing of it kind of pushed into now as opposed to later, this international travel with lots of unknowns in it. And so then here you are. How was it that this kind of journey helped you to, quote, find your way home in that way? What was it about the travel and the travel experience, as you say, you discover in you know exotic locations and, and different cultures that you discover things along the way that have helped you learn through your life, but in this particular trip brought you to a certain kind of healing, if I'm understanding well. Mm-hmm. There was a couple of things, actually. Um, one thing is, which I think not, you know, people wouldn't even really think about so much, but was the time off from my everyday life. You know, I didn't have to worry about paying the bills. I didn't have to worry about getting anywhere on time. I didn't have to worry about a job or I had all of those everyday worries that maybe aren't worries per se, but that are kind of routine things that you have to do every day in and day out were gone. And what replaced that was the, the intimate relationship and time spent with my husband and my two children, which I cannot say enough for. I don't think that you even 
I don't even think I realize even now, five years later, how immensely restorative that was and a relationship I built with my children. I, I feel like I'm so lucky to have had seven months to spend day in and day out with them. And so for that, the, you know, that relationship, that really kind of brought me back and said, okay, I need to stop looking backwards. I need to really look forward to my children and be there for them and my husband, of course. <laughs> and then the second part was we learned a lot about how different cultures deal with things like death. We had a particularly interesting encounter in uh, the middle of a jungle in Africa where they talked about two different tribes of monkeys and and one of them dies. Whenever the oldest member of the, one of the tribes died, two of the villages set on either side, well, the oldest person in one of those villages was going to die. And we asked, does that always happen? And they said, yes. You know, there was just a whole different view of, of death and dying and life in that. And so it made, it really kind of hit home, you know, really said what, what's really important is that you're here and you have all these people that rely on you and that, that you need to be here for and, and be here for yourself. You can't keep looking backwards. Have you come away sort of thinking that in Western culture, American culture, for that there's some lack in how we look at and understand death? Um, I don't know that there's some lack. I I just think it's different. I I don't know. I think here I felt afraid of felt afraid of it, um, and it, it's not that way everywhere. I mean, in other places, it's embraced as another stage. So I. I don't think that there's a lack. I think it's just different. Hmm. Well, so just having lots of different viewpoints from which to look at death and dying and living seems like it was part of the healing process. Mm -hmm. You write, and please forgive me, it's been a few weeks since I read your gorgeous book, so the, the specific locations are lost in my brain, but I'm remembering you being in Asia, and I, I think it was either Thailand or Singapore, where you're in a in a shrine or a temple, and it was quite an experience that had you come to terms or kind of looking at what was going on. Do you want to say a bit about that? Um, yeah. There, well, <laughs> my son would say, "Where weren't we in a temple?" In <laughs> that's all he did. They were like, "Mom, another temple, really?" <laughs> yeah, we went to in Singapore. We went to the the Buddhist Tooth Relic Museum, Buddha Tooth Relic Museum. And the funny part of that is, is that my husband is a dentist. And so we didn't feel like we could pass up a, a temple dedicated to a tooth. So it's supposed to be literally the tooth of the Buddha. Yes. The tooth of the Buddha was housed in that shrine. Um, and we went in and we thought we were being kind of noisy Americans in this meditation center. We were trying to be, you know, respectful and quiet. And a guide asked us to come and that a monk wanted to give us a blessing. And we didn't see him doing that with anyone else, but we, we did it. And he had us kneel and he put beads on us and he sang this prayer. And it just, it just kind of hit me that I, you know, that I had been working so hard on remember, you know, going through all this death and stuff. And that really I needed to focus on healing and focus on letting go of all that pain and, and grief and that it wasn't just going to go away on its own, that I actually had to 
work at that. So tell me what you mean by work at that. What, what does that look like or how does one do that? Um, you know, I, I, ha- I kind of describe it because we were in Singapore and it was so cloudy. It wasn't cloudy. It was smoky because of fires in Indonesia. It's so bad that you couldn't even see a block. And um, at one point, planes would fly over and dissipate chemicals into the air, to what was called cloud seeding, to make it rain to lessen the smoke. And that's mm. kind of what I thought about um, in my own mind when I when that was happening, that I I really had to be present and pay attention to the things that were happening and invite forgiveness for, you know, my relationships that hadn't gone exactly as I had planned. And there was no one else left that I could have those conversations with. So I had to do all that work by myself. You know, Um, my mom and I didn't get along super well, but I couldn't no longer have a conversation with her. And I couldn't keep being angry with her and upset with her because the only person that was affected was me. So I had to kind of come to terms on with just with myself and my feelings about that. You know, Lisa, as you're saying this, I'm thinking about certainly in my own life, but also in the lives of many people I've known that, you know, you think that, that the, the loss or the death that will hurt the most is the person that you is so beloved and adored and you're close to. And that that's true. It's a certain, that's a certain kind of loss. But when you lose somebody with whom you've been having conflict or disresolution or, or you've been estranged from them or something like that, it has a different kind of twist of the knife, doesn't it? that kind of loss. Yeah, it's because there's no resolution. And the resolution can't ever, ever, ever happen with them, directly with them. Right. So you have to resolve it within yourself. Yeah, I've, I've thought of those as, I call them double deaths. You know, like, yes, I lost the person, but I also lost the opportunity to resolve with them. And, and it seems like th- those were some of the ones that were, were so poignant to you during your travels. Yeah. I'm wondering too, what your, you had teenage sons, you know, what were they, 14, 15 at the time? What was their notion of your grief? Do you know? You know, when the, when the death started, I mean, they were pretty young. They were like seven and nine, I believe, maybe a couple of years younger than that. So a few of the early ones, I think my dad died first and my kids never didn't really know him at all because he had become very estranged from the family. Um, so I hadn't seen him in years. My kids only met him once, so they didn't really know him. And then when my grandfather died, that was kind of typical old age. So that was explainable. My brother, I kept them pretty sheltered from. And so when he died, I didn't bring them with me to the funeral. So they were pretty sheltered from all of that. And I think for a long time, I really just tried to keep up the notion of mom, you know? I think that they were both too young, and I think that I probably shielded them from a lot of that. If you were going to go back and do that with them again, would you do it any differently, or do you feel okay about that? Um, I feel okay about it, you know? I mean, they ask questions, and I've always been pretty forthright with everything that I've answered for them. Um 
So I didn't think that they necessarily needed to be a part of it. I think that it came along and they saw me process through that as we traveled. And I mean, I think if you recall, as we got to the end of our trip, I actually had a friend of mine who passed away as we were traveling. And so they did get to see that a little bit more. I was a little bit more open by that part of the trip and explained to them my sadness. And again, it was someone they didn't know. So they wasn't their loss per se. As No, it wasn't theirs. You know, they feel sad and can hug me and stuff, but they, they didn't, they weren't as close there. The other thing that, that struck me in your story too, is of course your husband who comes off as this sort of devil may care. It'll work out. Don't worry so much, Lisa, kind of a guy. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, but then that often is true in a couple. One person seems to be assigned to be the resident worrier and the other one is, you know, floats above that and you take turns sort of going back and forth through that. But it also seemed like, and tell me if I'm reading this into your story, but it, it seemed as though you were in such profound pain and loss and felt so out of control. I wondered if it felt as though you, you were afraid people were going to think you were crazy or that there was something broken and wrong about you? Hmm. That's a good question. Um, I guess, you know, I asked someone in a conversation recently to define my superpower. And she said, you're always calm through things. And I was like, what are you talking about? (laughs) If you think I'm calm through everything, I have got the wool pulled over your eyes for sure. And she's like, you might not be, but you seem it. And so I think for everyone around me, there was sort of that confusion as well. I think that Ray saw through that a little bit, my husband, that he knew I was not totally okay, but I don't think he knew exactly how not okay I was. Mm-hmm. And so when I had a couple of issues along the trip and I really start to kind of get panicky, I think he would kind of leap and say, you know, knock it off. You're fine. And so not really know how to deal with that. I don't think anyone would would say it was really off the deep end, but I think that I definitely tried to hide a little bit about how not okay I was. Well, and, and so he wasn't a jerk for saying, you know, honey, it's going to be okay. You know, lighten up. Don't worry about it. And he, he was trying to be reassuring and he's a pretty good guy. So at some, he comes across pretty well in this story, but also that I've got that image of, you know, the duck floating on the water and it looks all serene, but underneath the little legs are paddling. And it Uh seems like sometimes that's the case with those of us who have a calm exterior, but we've got some stuff going on inside that other can't, others can't see. I always joke that I made him the hero of my story. He's, he's pretty happy about that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, I'm wondering what you've learned about how you get through grief. What is it that has helped you or is helping you in an ongoing way to deal with loss? You know, I I actually feel like writing the story and really taking that several years to go through each location and think about what went on there and where I was at in my emotional journey I actually think that writing about the whole thing again was very helpful and kind of helped me see what was going on just with familial patterns with my parents and, and 
you know, how I have kind of stepped outside of that and not continued those patterns. So that was very helpful. And I have to say, Bessie, I haven't had to deal with a lot of loss since I've been back. So Well, you were kind of paid up. Yeah. <laughs> you you had you had quite a few there for a while. So that's merciful that that happened. But, you know, it also seems that, I mean, I, I've heard this a lot from, from guests on this program and in my life and for myself as well, that um, there's something about, and different people have different ways, writers do it through writing, but to honestly and open-eyedly, even though that's not a word, with open eyes, to witness your own story, to really witness it and to really not dwell in it and, you know, roll around in the agony of it, but to really look at it and tell yourself the whole story about the story seems like it's a restorative thing. I think, I think that's definitely true. Um, I did, there were things that I had kind of not even seen in my own story and really it's that family patterns and how my grandfather dealt with my mom and his kids and how my my dad's parents then got passed down to my dad that have then come on to us. And a long time, there was a lot more of that family pattern in the book, but it didn't make, it didn't make the final cut, but I definitely explored that pretty extensively as I was writing. Well, so in writing it, you see patterns that you might not see when you're just living day by day. It's kind of like having an aerial view in a way. Mm -hmm. That's how I kind of think of it. Like, you know, when you're trying to get through a, one of those corn mazes or something, it's really hard. But when you get up above it, it's like the path looks kind of obvious. Mm -hmm. It's a funny thing, isn't it? This, that grief and loss are just so much built in a part of life. And yet it's such an anguished part. Yes. And I think now that, you know, I we're beyond it first for quite a few years now. Um, for me now, looking back on this trip was an incredible adventure that I don't think, I don't think we'll ever, I mean, even if my husband and I travel, it, it won't be with two kids in tow. And I just, I can't even imagine our lives had we not taken that trip. I feel this bond with my children that I don't even know that I would have had otherwise. So I look back at this trip with like, just so much joy in my heart now. Hmm. Well, for my last question, I want to ask you about, I've, we've talked about the subtitle, but can you tell me about the title square up square up? So there's a couple of different things that that represents. I mean, one is to kind of write myself because I was sort of leaning. <laughs> so kind of an architectural term square up. Um, the other thing is it, you know, if you've traveled and been in big crowded places with people trying to sell you all kinds manner of trinket and tour and everything else, my husband and my kids and I, I tried to get everyone to come around me in a circle. And I said, circle up. And my son said, it's really more of a square mom. And so square up sort of became this calling card that I was like, okay, everybody square up. So the four of us would come together and just kind of block out the rest of the world, but block out the people trying to poke at us and sell us things so that we could make a decision as a family. And then as we traveled further, like up into Myanmar, there was so many stupas and we read so much stuff about the four sides and um, the each side representing love. I can't, I'm not going to remember all four of them right now, but 
um, sort of four sides, each representing a different piece of the pie and that you had to have all four to be in place. And so for me, it really meant, you know, me being present for my kids and me holding up my side of the square um, so that the four of us would be that family unit moving forward. That's a lovely image, isn't it? You know, it's funny after I, after I read your book, I started, you know, cause we tend to think of things in threes and, you know, there's lots of, you know, folklore and, you know, three little pigs, three little everything's right? right. But I started thinking about fours and I started thinking about, well, there are four seasons. There's North, South, East, West. There are four, you know, suits and a deck of cards. There, there, there are fours in a lot of places that are about, you know, a three-legged stool will sit, but a four-legged stool is more stable, right? Uh-huh. It's a beautiful image. Well, Lisa, your book, Square Up, is a, it, it, it also has extraordinary stories of travel and of peoples and of the beauty and of different faiths and cultures and foods and all of those things in the world. So if you, even without the family story, it's a beautiful story of a journey. But with the story of your own um, grief recovery and the connection with your family. It's an extraordinary story. Thank you so much for sharing it with us today. Thank you, Betsy. I loved reading Square Up by Lisa Daly. It's a beautifully written book and that's always fun. And it's travel to interesting and exotic places and interesting experiences with the family and all of that. So it's a good story, but I also like the story under the story the story of having an experience that gives you time. Time, of course, with your loved ones, but also time to examine your own experience and to learn from it. And what Lisa was saying, that to really do the work, to really spend time, and for her, the writing of the story was a reparative process. It does seem... Her story also isn't unique in that lots of people, everybody has loss, but it seems that lots of folks have lost that kind of bunches up. It's a traffic jam of it of sorts. And, and that when that happens and you don't have time to catch your breath between them, even and process one before another one hits, it can be really a challenge. I'm thinking about a quote by Hakura Murakami who said, when you come out of the storm, you won't be the same person that walked in. That's what the storm is all about. Though she wasn't writing literally about a storm, she's writing about a journey. I I thought about that with Lisa's book, that, that she came out of that experience a different person, uh, a person who had reflected and grown, grieved, wove those things into herself. And also had a beautiful family adventure. So not all of grief recovery is about agony. It can also be about living and about joy, about finding that again. Hmm. That's my extra bloom for the day. Thanks so much for listening to The Morning Glory Project. And to find out more, you can look up Squared Up by Lisa Daly, 50,000 Miles in Search of a Way Home. And I know you'll enjoy the story. I wish you every bit of joy in your own journey. And I know that wherever you are, my hope is that you're finding your way to bloom.